and start into looking through Hosea together today. And so, if you would turn there with me, the first, at least in the table of contents of your Bible, probably, of the Minor Prophets, right after the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, Hosea. Who would like to read verse 1 for us? Hosea 1, verse 1. Evan, thank you. All right, what things do you observe from this first verse? Okay, good. Hosea was a prophet. So we see this phrase, the word of the Lord. We see the phrase, the word of the Lord, a lot in First and Second Kings, for example, uh, in the ministries of Elijah and Elisha, and just the emphasis on God's word being fulfilled. Okay, so the word of the Lord, Hosea is now a prophet. Okay, and what did prophets do? Two primary tasks. Okay, but what does that mean? Foretelling and foretelling. Okay, good. Foretelling and foretelling. The one is saying what's going to happen later. The other is reminding people of what God has already said. Okay. Um, which one do you think Hosea does? We'll see as we go through the book. But which one do you think Hosea does? Okay. We will see as we go through. But interestingly enough, I think there are, um, there are elements of saying what's going to happen. But a lot of what Hosea is doing is looking back and reminding people of truth that God had already said and rebuking them for their unbelief. And so, unlike, well, Isaiah has elements of both, but I feel like the balance is maybe tipped a little bit more towards what's going to be later on. Whereas here, I, and we'll see as we go through the book if, if our sense of that changes, but the sense of it reading through it a number of times recently is that it's more rebuking them for their sin and saying things right here and now. So, But, but we'll see if, if you agree with that or change my mind on that as we go through as well. So, what else do we notice? Okay, God came to him. So, God approached Hosea. Hosea didn't volunteer and say, I want to be a prophet and I want to go rebuke the people. Okay. Okay. What's significance about what's significant about those four kings being mentioned? Could be a number of answers to that, but Okay. Why are those names familiar to us potentially? Uh-huh, go over to the Isaiah one. Okay. 
what does Isaiah 1 verse 1 say? Same kings of Judah. So what does that tell us about Isaiah and Hosea? Yeah, they're living at roughly the same time. Now, the question is, are we looking at a prophet who is primarily to the people of Israel, the people of Judah. Which one was Isaiah primarily speaking to? Isaiah was mostly the people of Judah, right? Although he addressed Israel as well. Who do you think God is speaking to um, through Hosea? Yeah. And sometimes that's a broad term, but I think he's primarily speaking to this concept of the nation as a whole or the northern tribes of Israel and less so the people of Judah. And uh, so, for example, when we get to verse 4, he's going to talk about punishing the house of Jehu. Where did Jehu reign? Northern Israel, right? So I think his ministry, if we just read through without any reference to external introductions and study Bibles and all those sorts of things, we just read through the book itself. He is addressing both, but he seems to be primarily addressing the people of Israel. Okay. Um, during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So, this Jeroboam is he, the first Jeroboam that we encounter in the line of the kings of Israel. Based on the question, I'm guessing no. No. <laughs> All right? Yeah. So I'm trying to remember. I didn't look up to see which chapter the, uh, the uh, there's, there's certain lists of the kings of, of, uh, of Israel. But first kings we have, um, you remember, uh, all right, so like first kings 12. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. When Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, he was living in Egypt. They called him, and then in the middle of chapter 12, Israel departed to their tents. Uh, for the sons of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah, Rehoboam ruled over them. And then um, when the people heard Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all of Israel. Okay? What was significant about the first Jeroboam, which is not the one we're talking about now, but what's significant about the first Jeroboam? Okay, what sort of wickedness did he perpetuate? Remember what they did when they were coming up from Egypt? Idols, good. What did they do when they came up from Egypt? What did they make? Golden calves. So he makes two golden calves, one in Bethel and the other in Dan. And he establishes houses of worship and he established feasts. He basically sets up a parallel system of worship, right? Now, what's significant about that is when you come to Jesus encountering the woman at the well, she is in the region of what would have been the capital city of the northern tribes of Israel. And she's a Samaritan. 
and she talks about worshiping on this mountain versus where you are, right? Why does that, why is that, where is there that division? Some of it's because of what happened during the exile, but a lot more of it is what happened when Jeroboam led the tribes astray into idolatry shortly after Solomon's death. So, this is not the same Jeroboam. This is another Jeroboam. And uh, this Jeroboam is Jeroboam II, but he is, um, he is reigning, uh, I think we're looking at, let me see here. It's around 2 Kings, let's see here. I meant to look up the chart and I didn't get to it, so I'm uh, skimming through here to find it. So obviously we have um, Hezekiah. Jeroboam the second. Of Second Kings? Second Kings fourteen. Okay, thank you. Appreciate that. Alright, so Second Kings fourteen. Oh, there it is. Middle of the chapter. I saw Amaziah and I jumped to the end of it. Alright, so Second Kings fourteen, verse fifteen, the rest of the acts of Jehoash he did, etc. etc. Are they not written in Chronicles? Jeroboam his son became king in his place. Okay? So Jeroboam is uh, we see him there in 2 Kings 14. I believe there's also an entry about him in 2 Chronicles. So young Joash, 2 Chronicles 24. Um, then we have Uzziah, Ahaz, Jotham, Hezekiah. Anyways, um, Is he a good king, Jeroboam II? Apart from reading anything in Kings and Chronicles, the fact that Hosea is going and rebuking the people during his reign is an indication he's not leading them to fall after God, right? Okay. And he is walking in the ways of his distant ancestor for whom he is named. Um, this is not at all related, but I had a similar thought about recurrence of names of rulers uh, when King Charles got crowned king, because the last Charles was quite a long time ago, right? I believe in the time of Cromwell, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and he was not a particularly godly king or necessarily a particularly great leader, and whether this one proves to be any different remains to be seen somewhat, but uh, certainly, I don't think there would be any great expectation that he would be a great ruler. So, if we look at the line of the kings of Israel, what primary um, conclusion do we walk away with? That they were good or bad? Most of them are bad, right? There's almost none of them there. There's slightly more that are good in the line of the kings of Judah, but not hugely more. But there were a ton of, of Israel. Keep moving. Verses 5. Who can read verses 2 through 5 for us? Bob? 
When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord <coughs> said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel, for yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. It will come about on that day <clears throat> that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. All right. So what do we observe from verse 2? <coughs> yes, Sandra? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Was Yeah, was Hosea the one who was committing adultery? No. So the fact that he could marry a wife who was committing adultery and yet alive was a commentary on the status of the people because what was supposed to happen if adultery was carried out? Right. Yeah, and, and in her case, it wasn't, I don't know that she was married before, so maybe adultery is not the right word. Um, so, if he marries her and no one is condemning her for living the way that she was living, it's a sign of the moral degradation of that day. Uh, why would God tell him to marry someone that he knew was going to be unfaithful to him? Right, so he says, for the people, the land commits harlotry forsaking the Lord. There's a ton of examples. We see it in 2 Corinthians. Uh, we see it here. We see it a number of places throughout the words of the prophets. God basically says, people of Israel, people of Judah, it's as though you are my wife. I have taken you. I have covenanted with you. You belong to me. I belong to you. When you go and worship other gods, it's as though you're taking other men into your bed. Ezekiel gets very explicit about it, which we're not looking at at the moment, but there's some parallel passages there that are very explicit that basically, um, mm, I guess the, the best way to put it would be, and even we saw this in Isaiah briefly, that the people got to a point where they were so committed to their idolatry, they would go to any lengths to make it happen. And... God basically says, you're past the point of anybody wanting you anymore, even the pagan gods which you've worshipped, and so you're basically paying them to love you. And so it's a very sad and degraded and just miserable sort of situation that they get themselves into. But God is trying to illustrate with this picture, here is a woman that would not be the first pick of people in Israel, let alone someone who's a prophet faithfully following after God, 
But he's illustrating, here's Hosea, who's following me, walking after me, speaking my word. Here's this woman who is pursuing all sorts of lovers and having children as a result of it. And this is, I think, a point that we don't, at least I don't think I really thought about the first few times I read the book of Hosea. Hosea's kids probably weren't actually Hosea's kids. When, so when he says, have children of harlotry, I think he's basically saying she's going to go and have kids with other guys while you're married to her, and this is going to be a picture of what the people of Israel are doing. So, uh, She conceives and bears him a son. I mean, it's supposedly his son. And perhaps is in fact his son. But um, the other ones, it's interesting, the phrasing, that may, makes it sound very much like it's not necessarily his kid. So it's possible the first one is his. Uh, when it says name him Jezreel, anybody have a study Bible that says what Jezreel means? God sows. What's really fascinating about that name is he says, I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel. Now, what's the bloodshed of Jezreel? Anybody remember what Jehu does? Jehu goes on this kind of murderous rampage, right? God appoints Jehu, I think it was against Ahab, right? Ahab's very wicked. He says, I want you to go kill them. And he not only kills Ahab, but he just kills anybody who happens to be nearby. And so God says, you went above and beyond what I told you to do, and for your excessive bloodthirstiness and bloodshed, you will be punished. And so there's this idea of reaping and sowing that is God calling into account the people of Israel. And he says, I'm going to put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. I'll break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Okay. So, we see um, in uh, any any other things that you notice. Sorry. Okay. How long does it say? 41 years. Okay. Yes. Do you think there were so many of these things Hmm, that's a good question. Were there a lot of wicked kings because God didn't want the people to have a king? I don't think I would say that God didn't want the people to have the king. I think God wanted to appoint a king who would be righteous in his own time, and they wanted to push up the timetable and demand a king at the wrong time. Because if you go all the way back to Genesis 48 or 49, God talks about there being a ruler from the descendants of Judah and all these sorts of things. So I think it was always God's purpose, us and, you know, 
this is where it gets tricky to talk about what ifs in terms of God's sovereign purpose. But I think it was always God's purpose, even if the people had not demanded a king, to give them a king in his time. Um, I think the sin of Samuel's sons, the people always looking at the nations around them instead of looking to God, and all of those things, and the fact that there happened to be what they thought maybe were good candidates, led them to say, we want a king right now. And I think God was going to give them a king. I think it just, from an ideal sort of plan, would not have been at that specific moment. Why would there be so many wicked kings, though? That is a good question. What are some other reasons that there might have been a lot of wicked kings, if it's not that one, potentially? Are there are a lot of people who are wicked, Jonathan. Yeah. So instead of going with God's direction, they went in their own direction. They don't have temple worship and unity with the people of Judah and with the place that God had established with the temple and all those sorts of things to sort of anchor them from going astray into idolatry. So that's a big part of it. Evan, did you have something real quick? Or same kind of idea? Okay, Sandra? Okay, yeah. So there's the power of example. Jeroboam sets this terrible example and all the kings after him basically follow the same pattern, right? Okay. What... And this is something that I think that we forget about. One of the functions of the king and of the priests was to do what? With regard to what God had said. To teach the people. He was supposed to teach the people, right? So in Isaiah, when it talks about God saying he's going to come down and be their teacher because all their human rulers have failed them, we tend to think, oh, like there's no professors to instruct them and give them knowledge. But no, the king and the priests were supposed to be going around instructing the people of Israel and leading by example. So to the extent that that gets disconnected from any function that they have, priests that Jeroboam appoints are not going to be teaching people about God. He's not going to be teaching them about God, except in this corrupted sense, because he's established this parallel system of worship. And so all of the systems that God put in place to keep people on the right path, sort of get thrown aside. And so we should probably be shocked that there are any kings of Israel that follow after God, right? Okay? Or any people, for that matter, uh, along those times. Um, I, the question that I have from verse 5, which I don't have an answer to, it's one of the things that I didn't explore fully enough, on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Jezreel is a... Is a place that we see referenced in the Old and the New Testament. Um, we see it in the book of Judges. We see it mentioned in some of the prophetic books. I believe it's mentioned in Revelation as well. Uh, so at what point does God talk about breaking the bow? I think our expectation would be when the people are conquered by the Assyrians. That's probably the most likely answer. If there's a specific verse that indicates that, I'd have to go back and find it. I'm just going to throw that out there. That would be something for further exploration. What My goal in looking at this is not that I necessarily have all the answers or not that you necessarily have all the answers, but that we go through these chapters and as we read things, perhaps we notice new things, and this perhaps should parallel what's happening when we're doing our own Bible study at home. We don't necessarily know all the answers right away, but you're reading through it and you say, I need to look at this, I need to look up this, I need to look up this. And you could either go and look up that later, 
or you could just keep reading through the book and then go back a second time, look up some of those things, read it again with a fuller understanding. There's a variety of ways to approach it. Uh, I just wanted to kind of walk through this with you. All right, uh, verses 6 through 7. Who can read 6 and 7 for us? Please. Devin, thank you. Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Name her Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel, but I would ever forgive them. But I will have compassion on the house of Judah, and deliver them by the Lord their God, and will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. Okay. What do we see from these two verses? <coughs> yes, Retta. This one, when they, she conceived the daughter, it doesn't say that it's his daughter, like it did with the son. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So potentially Jezreel is actually his son and the ones after are not. And there's difference of opinions among commentators on what the case is with that. But think about that. Every time you call her name, no compassion. No compassion. Come here, no compassion. And, you know, we can... Uh, we can overplay the significance of those things because I'm not sure that every person whose son was named Joshua thought God saves every time they called his name, right? It could be that sometimes that was just his name. But at the same time, there, there is a significance to these names that God is pointing out, okay? Maybe. Yeah, except there's going to be another low in just a second, so but maybe it's not low. Uh, it's something to consider when he says that I would ever forgive them because it sounds like God's done with them. Okay, We'll see if that conclusion is borne out as we come to the end of the chapter. Um, what is God playing favorites in verse 7? Why not? Sandra? Okay, but why is he not also punishing the people of Judah? Because Uzziah, Jotham, and Ahaz are all wicked kings and the people are committing idolatry. I, absolutely, but it still seems like favoritism if he says, forget you Israel, but Judah I'm going to save even though they're wicked. I'm not saying you're wrong. I just think we need to wrestle with this a little bit more. Okay, but any sin condemns us, right? Okay. That's an interesting point that I think we need to consider. Are any of the kings of Israel in the line of David? 
No, because you have this random guy who's wandering off in Egypt who comes and appoints himself king, right? So it's like a new dynasty is established in northern Israel that's not connected with David. So if the kings of Israel are not descendants of David, what does that mean about the promises God has made to David? They don't apply to those kings or their descendants or to some extent the people who are following them. Okay, Evan, what were you going to say? Same kind of thing? Go ahead. All right, yeah. So, so if we take all those things together, there's promises made to David. Northern tribes don't have those because they abandoned David's house. Southern tribes do, despite their wickedness. Judah still gets what they deserve just later on. Uh, there are righteous kings like Hezekiah that sort of delay the punishment. Um, God has the, the right to say, Esau, you're wicked. You have no place with me. Jacob, you're wicked, but I'm going to redeem you and make you my own. God has the right to do that. So there's precedent for that in the way. So I, the reason I think that we want to wrestle with this a little bit is if, if we're looking at a passage like this, it might be possible for us to just say, to jump immediately to, well, God can do whatever he wants because of an emphasis on God's sovereignty, which is true, but there's a lot of other elements that are going on here, and that's the thing that I want us to think about a little bit. Anything else on that? If not, we'll move on to the last few verses here. Sandra? Um, I don't know if this applies, but, but what just came across my mind is when Jesus was talking about the Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there is an interesting parallel to consider would God spare judgment if there are a slightly larger percentage of people following him in Judah than in Israel? Possibly. It is fascinating to note on that point when Elijah says, I'm the only one, what's God's response to him? Yeah, six or 7,000 others that have not bowed the knee to Baal, which proportionally is not a large percentage, but it's not nothing. So yeah, that'd be worth exploring. Some of these are questions I think we can't fully answer, but we can at least gather all the information that it's worth considering. Who wants to read verses 8 through 11 for us? Verses 8 through 11. Bruce, thank you. Sons of Judah and the sons 
Okay. So what do we notice from these? Verses. Let's start with 8 and 9. Okay. No compassion, not people. Okay. Yet, what? Has God abandoned his people? No. Paul raises this question Has God abandoned the people of Israel? And he says, No. God temporarily sets them aside. God grafts the Gentiles in. This is part of the whole discussion in Romans 9 through 11, um, which I think ties in very closely with what we're seeing here. Does God have the right to punish some and to show mercy on others? Yes. Does God completely abandon his people that he is connected with by covenant? No. Even if he sets them aside, brings them low, uses uh, various things to discipline them, he has not completely forgotten them, which I think we see in verse 10. The number will be like the sand of the sea, right? Now here's an interesting point at which this ties into 1 Peter. So verse 1 tied into Isaiah, that was unintentional. Verse, these verses, particularly 6 through 9, and then a little bit here at the end, ties into something that we're going to look at 1 Peter 2. And uh, we won't go into all of it because I don't want to not have you want to come that Sunday. But 1 Peter 2, what does it say in 1 Peter 2, verse 10? in here. So, this ties into that discussion that we did a few weeks ago on what is the point of First Peter. Is it God talking to Gentiles and saying, forget about Israel, Gentiles now are the fulfillment of what he says here? Or, I think more consistently with what the passage is saying, when he says the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, I think he's talking about the fact that God is going to restore and multiply his people from the remnant that he preserves despite their idolatry and despite his judgment on them. There is a reference here perhaps to Jeremiah chapter 30 and then um, we're going to see this come up again in Hosea 3. It says, Afterward the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. So there is an expectation of a restoration of Israel that I think we do violence to the sense of the text if we just say, forget Israel, drop in the church. This is not, an, this is not a Mad Lib where you just write a random noun in the blank, right? Bob? Doesn't he use this language from the prophets? Yes, and that was the point I think I was trying to make when we talked about this the last time. God says, so are the Gentiles part of God's people? Absolutely. Paul makes that very clear, for example, in Ephesians 2. 
you were distant, you were far apart, all those sorts of things, now you've been brought near. So my point of contention is not, does the Bible teach Gentiles are part of God's people? My point is to say, when we see in Hosea, not people, no mercy, and we see in 1 Peter, not people, no mercy, they're parallel ideas talking to two different groups about the same mercy of God shown to them. And there are obviously a lot of Bible scholars who are far more prestigious than I am who would disagree with that, but this is not out of a sense of trying to, um, you know, there's, there's movements of covenant theology and dispensationalism and, and all sorts of mergers and in-betweens of all of those. It's not a point of trying to defend a theological system. My concern is when we say God makes a promise and we see a clear connection between a promise that he has made and something else that comes later in the Bible, and we sort of repurpose what God has said to make it say something else, that's not the normal way that language is used, and there is a degree to which it potentially calls into question God's integrity and God's faithfulness. Because one of the defining descriptions of God in the Old Testament is that he is a God of covenant loyalty over and over and over again that word appears paralleled with I forget if it's goodness or something like that those two words are used to describe God over and over and over again mercy? Mm, yeah mercy might be it yeah uh, loving kindness and mercy yes yeah so if we have a God who has covenant loyalty even to people who don't deserve it and has mercy on sinners, which makes more sense? That he behaves in a similar fashion to another group of people that he didn't originally give those promises to? Or that he completely abandons the first group and is like, let's start over and try again? That's my real issue with this idea of the long word is supersessionism, the idea that the church has replaced Israel. It is that it puts us in a position of saying, God made all these promises, but forget those, yay the church, too bad Israel. Bob? So is the idea from your perspective <clears throat> to combat that wrong type of thinking that the church replaced Israel because that's something that's fairly prevalent today? It, it is very prevalent today. Like probably 90% of the commentaries that you would read are going to take... First Peter, for example, and say that it's talking about Gentiles and use that to build a case for the church replacing Israel. Or just broadly beyond that, um, there's just a lot of um, there's just a lot of features of that. So when it comes to something like dispensationalism, here's where I'm at. Someone like Schofield, or particularly people who came after Schofield, went overboard, and they made it sound like here's these seven boxes. And if the box isn't your box, stay out of it, right? So it almost undermined the relevance of major swaths of the Bible to you and I because uh, they weren't written to us. But the reality is none of the Bible was written directly to us. So if we push that too far, we basically end up with, well, forget about any of the Bible. We just have a sense of it. Jonathan? Right. So there's no replacement. 
Right. Norma? Is God a power of uh, mercy, would you say? Well, I'm saying that God shows mercy to the people of Israel by restoring them again in the future, yes. Is that your question? Or? Yeah. So, I, here's, here's the bottom line. There are a lot of people who will say, the church has replaced Israel. So land, seed, blessing is replaced with heaven, lots of church members, and, and getting to be with God forever. Right? But the reality is, that's not what God originally promised. He promised actual land, actual physical descendants, and blessings connected with the people of Israel. And so I just think we need to be very careful when we look at a book like Hosea, and all of those, when we see God's mercy, here is my people Israel, who's like a wife who is a prostitute that a faithful man marries, and she keeps going back to all these other men, and he keeps being faithful to her. That's what God is to the people of Israel. So if God's illustration of his faithfulness doesn't abandon his wife when he had every reason to, why would we come to the conclusion that God abandoned his people Israel even though they didn't deserve his loyalty? I don't think we should. Does he discipline them? Does he withdraw from them for a time? I mean, Isaiah uses the language of divorce, but he says, and then I went and got them back, right? So, we can keep talking about that uh, in, uh, when we get more into chapter 2 and the rest of the book. But we'll stop there for today. Hopefully it's been a profitable introduction to the book of Hosea, and we'll head into the morning service. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. We do not deserve it. We often stray, and yet you have shown us mercy. Help that to be something that motivates us to follow you more faithfully, not out of a sense of trying to repay what we can never do, but just out of a sense of being overwhelmed by your grace to us, by your mercy to us, by your faithfulness over and over and over again. Help us to hate our sin and keep turning back to you. For you are a faithful God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.